Welcome to the first episode of Sihot Kashot, Difficult Conversations. I am your host, Maddie Anderson. Today, I am joined by my colleague and friend, Rabbi Zoe McCoon. Zoe was recently ordained on the HUC Cincinnati campus, where we met and had the pleasure of studying together. In this episode, we will discuss some of the issues around sexual misconduct and gender-based harassment in Jewish institutions, specifically in the Reformed Jewish movement. Before we jump in, Zoe, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself and why I invited you specifically to join me for this conversation? Absolutely. Hi, everyone. I am Rabbi Zoe McCoon. I am currently the rabbi at Temple Beth Torah in Fremont, California. This is my first year in the rabbinate, so shehechiani moment to me. Um, But beyond that, um, I have done a lot of work around what I would call Judaism and intimacy, really kind of expanding the idea of what are the thing, the necessary things that human beings experience that need to be addressed in our lifetime. And this both addresses the challenges that we're going to be talking about in this conversation and the wider conversations that actually need to be had in order to have the full conversation that expands the breadth of human experience. That's both the challenges and the beautiful things. I was a women's studies major in under in my in undergraduate studies at the University of Michigan. And during my time there, I actually created a curriculum for ninth graders that I called Jewish personal living. Actually, B'Shem Omro, in the name of um, a class that I had taken that I thought was so incredibly mm-hmm. important, talking about Jewish understandings of healthy relationships and sexuality and our bodies and did I say consent already? Consent is very important, um, but, um, and mental health and all of these things that needed to be talked about. And as I thought about what I wanted my rabbinate to look like, a lot of the issues that I wanted to be able to address, including partner violence, including sexual harassment and assault, it was really important to me that I got the training that I needed and the experience that I needed and did the work that I needed around these issues so that I can be there for people who are experiencing these things in our communities, because statistically they are, whether we know it or not. Absolutely. And and we're going to look at some of those statistics. I can't remember if I had a chance to share it with you or not, but I gave my senior sermon about what's going on in the reform community right now. And, and yeah, I, I included statistics as well, because I think it's important for people to understand how many people are really facing uh, sexual violence in in some form or another. Um, Thank you so much for joining us. I'm excited to to be here together with you. I'm I'm glad that we're able to have this conversation. So as we go through some statistics and through a few quotes that I pulled from articles, which again will be shared with listeners and they'll have access to the quotes that we're looking at, but they'll also have access to read the entire article if they're interested. The things that we're going to think about is what's surprising. Um, are there terms that are emotionally charged that we need to like take a step back and define or talk about a little bit further? What's hard to hear, which I don't know, I think this whole episode is filled with things that are hard to hear. These questions are really meant to fit 
all of the different topics that I'm going to tackle throughout the podcast, but we can talk about which things are, you know, hardest for us in this, in this episode, I think. What new information did we learn, if any? And I know you and I have both read these pieces more than once, so maybe there won't be as much new information for us, but maybe we'll learn some things from each other that we can talk about. Um, And are any of your views challenged or, or confirmed? So we're going to dive in. The first thing I want to talk about is statistics, and then we'll get more into the specifics of what's going on in the Jewish community. The statistics I brought with are from the CDC and then also from this organization called Darkness to Light. Um, Darkness to Light focuses on child sexual abuse. The CDC's Division of Violence Prevention as of 2015, which is their most recent statistical study, say that one in five women and one in 14 men in the United States have reported a completed or attempted rape at some point in their lifetime. And we can talk about all the different ways that rape can be defined. I think they're defining it pretty broadly in the statistic, but those numbers are hard to sit with. I think one in one in five women, one in 14 men. Yeah, and I think that it's even... It's even more painful because we know that those are underreported, right? Partially because some people don't report because they don't feel like they're going to be believed, but also because some people, it takes them a really long time to realize that something that they experienced actually was rape. Yeah. And so it becomes, and it's tied with identity and it's tied with all these different things. But what's really upsetting is when the Me Too movement was revived, it feels like both yesterday and like 7,000 years ago, those statistics were coming to life, right? Like it wasn't just these theoretical human beings that are somewhere in the world. It was people that we knew and hearing um, and hearing their stories. And even if they didn't share their stories, just knowing that they've been holding on to something that's so incredibly painful. And in my life, I was actually seeing before my eyes that the one in five was an undersell. So it was really upsetting to say the least. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think holding those numbers, I just try and remember that whatever space I'm in, there's going to be people around me who are facing this. And so I just, I try and walk with that information and that sensitivity with every person that I approach because we don't know each other's stories and um, we can't assume that people have not faced it because frankly, it's more likely that they have. Mm -hmm. Um, One other thing that I would just say is that they don't have um, in there for people who are non-binary or trans and we don't have I'm not aware of the specific statistics in this particular arena but I do know from having interacted with other people who work in this field that the numbers are even higher yeah absolutely I don't know what the statistics are either right now I and I um yeah I should have looked those up I mean, certainly the CDC isn't tracking that information, which is problematic. Like we can start right there. We should be, we should be tracking it from the CDC. It's interesting. So the next statistic I have darkness to light, they actually don't separate their statistics by gender, which 
I don't know if that's in an attempt to change their language, um, to not gender it, because when I was doing some work with this organization that I'll talk about later, about 10 years ago, they were definitely gendering it. Um, so I'm not sure if they're actually collecting data differently or if they're just reporting it differently. But what they say is one in 10 children are sexually abused before their 18th birthday. So, you know, the CDC statistics are likely including some of those because the CDC statistics are talking about in, in people's lifetimes. So there are certainly people who could have reported a rape in their lifetime that happened as a child. It's It's important for us to know I think any adult, you know, Zoe, you and I are leaders in our community. And so I think we feel responsible over our children and our communities. But I think for every adult to understand that children are being abused at this rate and for us to get a handle on like how to stop some of this is is really important. Completely. One of the challenges in addressing this is that people are very, on the one hand, they're very protective of their children and what information they feel is appropriate to be talking to their children about in relation to sex. But unfortunately, what that means is that there are some things that are just not talked about with their children. And so by the time that children are finding out about these kinds of things like consent or who is allowed to touch your body, or if somebody touches your body, what are you supposed to do? Those conversations don't happen until they're teenagers. And for many of the people, one in 10, it's actually too late. And so we're, it's an internal struggle, because obviously, we want to make sure that we're a not, um, you know, causing undue trauma to children by giving them information before it's too soon. Um, And on the other hand, we want to make sure that our kids have the tools that they need because unfortunately, sometimes they're traumatized either way and then actually may think that it's their fault or think that they don't have anybody that they can come and talk to because it's never been addressed with them or they've been communic it's been communicated to them in one way or another that this is not something that we talk about. And so they feel like they're not allowed to talk about it. And that's an incredible shame that there are children on this earth and young people on this earth, not just, it doesn't like break it down into categories under 18, but this really runs the gamut of, you know, young children, um, pre-adolescents, teenagers. These are all age categories that, um, are so foundational to one's understanding of their life. And so many of these young people don't realize that they have any support because it hasn't been addressed. Yeah. And I think that problem trickles into college, like into undergraduate programs. Um, You know, we're not really tracking the statistic of what's happening to people between the ages of like 18 and 25. While we know that, neurological science has proven that like our brains are not yet formed until we're 25. And so while we may be, you know, quote, legally adults, and and that's how we attract statistics, scientifically, we're still not 
ready to make thoughtful decisions. And if you don't have that information in high school, it's scary. And it gets even scarier when you're out in the world, you know, maybe outside of your parents' house, living on your own. And yeah, I agree with you. I mean, we have to start from a very early age with this education in in a way that's appropriate for each age group. And, and also we can't stop. It has to keep going and, and we have to make sure that our kids are prepared when they, when they go out and build their own communities. For sure. And I mean, to be fair, as somebody who works at a congregation with a preschool right now, when I was writing my thesis, one of the big things that I looked at, um, our whole lives has this incredible pre-K and K age look at intimacy education for four and five-year-olds. And there's all this incredible stuff and it's talking about self-esteem and it's talking about our bodies and it's talking about, you know, I think there was something in there about like loving touch or something along the lines of like what touch is appropriate and what touch is not consent and all these different things. And my first thought was, yeah, like we need to do that right away. Like we need to jump into that. And then you know, now I work at a congregation and now I have to think to myself, okay, so, you know, ideally this is what I want to see in the world. And this is what I would also love to see in Jewish preschools and in preschools everywhere. But how do we get the buy-in? What's the appropriate way to move in that direction? Because it's not just about what they're hearing at schools. It's also about how we're giving resources to parents and how we're creating a, um, messaging system for our young people that's consistent um and that's a little bit um messier to make than just like the ideals of you know writing your thesis and reading these great books like that's wonderful and awesome but it requires a lot of intention so here I, you know i as somebody who wants to like make the world a better place. It's definitely something that I've wrestled with personally between what my ideals are and what I want to see and, you know, what I've put in place personally so far and the conversations that I've had with other leaders in our community about like what the actual practice, like. What's possible. The implementation, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think the buy-in you know, like you're saying, it has to come from the people who are teaching it. It has to come from the parents of those children. And and ultimately, what we're talking about is weaving this into the culture of the institution, that this education is something that is just a part of what we do. Um, and we're talking a lot about kids now, but we're also going to talk about some of these issues in the adult population in our community. And so I think I think the education never ends. And it's something that, you know, even people who don't have kids need this education because it's not all about kids. And and yeah, making that kind of institutional change to bring a new piece into our culture that hasn't, hasn't necessarily been there. And in every community, it's hard and it takes time. And you know, hopefully this, this conversation is one opportunity to learn a little bit about what's going on and, and inspire people to work towards some of that change with us. Amen. 
So let's dive into the first few texts that I brought. So this first article was published in July of this year, 2021, just barely this year. Um, we are recording two days before 2022. So uh, that's an exciting, an exciting turn. But so about six months ago, this came out and it was an investigation titled How Jewish Youth Groups Are Breeding a Toxic Sex Culture for Teens. So this is talking about youth groups across movements, and it doesn't talk specific about any camps, but we know that these things are going on um, both in our youth movements and in our summer camps. So just to give us a place to start the conversation, I'll, I'll read this first quote, accounts of sexual harassment and assault in these spaces, American Jewish youth groups, are pervasive and often go unreported or ignored. As the publishing of this article, dozens of young American Jews have shared their stories of feeling pressured to engage in sexual activity, to witnessing or experience full-fledged sexual assault. At least 50 of the stories allegedly took place at events hosted by youth groups. And uh, some of the things take place in camp. So one of the things that I think I was most disturbed by in this article is actually this next piece. There's this point system that seems to be prevalent across all the youth groups. So it says the point system is a competition that's been around for at least three decades, circulating informally among participants where youth group members score points via hookups. They get different points for different people, different points for different kinds of sexual acts. It's, um, it's pretty disturbing. And one former youth group participant described it as Greek life for kids. So a question I have for you, did, were you involved in youth group at all? So where I grew up, I did not have youth group, but I did have summer camp. Um, and I can certainly think back to um, a lot of the culture at the Jewish summer camp that I grew up at. It was a URJ camp um, that really matches the kind of information that's in this article. So did you grow up in the youth group movement? Yeah, I mean... That was what it was. And I remember first hearing about it and it was, it felt very scandalous and, you know, it's um, challenging, especially because in your teenage years, that's also when you're figuring out stuff about yourself and what seems exciting or intriguing or any of these things. And if we're being honest, for the most part, people weren't actually like points were more like a, like it was more like a joke. It wasn't like people were actively trying to get them mm. um, in the same way that I, I know in other regions, it was a little bit more active. But for us, it was just like, can you believe that this is a thing that exists? And like, someone would be like, oh, well, if I was counting points, I probably would have blah, 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 blah. The point system, if we're being honest, is obviously incredibly problematic, especially when we think about the fact that these young people who were interacting with this point system hadn't most likely heard of consent before and also like there's some nonsense about like if it's with somebody of the same gender as you then it's like double points or whatever there's a lot of 
exoticizing of certain types of relationships and it's not really about any kind of healthy anything it's just like if a girl makes out with a girl like cool that's great and they get more points it's uh not what I would call an ideal model for how we're supporting LGBT relationships by any means um yeah it's certainly not the message that that we're trying to send from the pulpit to our community. Yeah, um, and if we're like, what's interesting is that there obviously were people who were against this point system. And there were also advisors who were very happy to encourage it's part of the quote unquote excitement of like youth group, like you're finally meeting other young Jewish people and like, Jewish continuity or whatever nonsense that's this is. And there's something really challenging for me when thinking about this, because as teenagers, there are appropriate levels of intimacy that people may be interested in, right? Depending on the situation, it may be okay that somebody might want to make out with somebody. That's not an unlikely scenario. And it's not inappropriate actually developmentally but because there is a crackdown on this kind of thing one of the interesting issues is how do you crack down on something like this hookup point system without creating shame around people who are interested in creating a different kind of connection with somebody that they hadn't had the chance to do before and without creating a sense of shame because we are, we're not trying to say we should be cutting down on healthy relationships between young Jewish people. I think that's actually something that's just fine. I'm not obviously saying, oh, sure. you, can, you can sign up for the makeout room from this time to this time, and we're totally fine with it. But there's something that I don't have an answer to, but I do have a struggle with on how do we communicate this is what's inappropriate but you are not inappropriate for having desire and you are not inappropriate for wanting to kiss this person that you find attractive or that intrigues you in some way. And it's a a fine line of navigating strict boundaries and rules and moving away from shame. I think that's, it's perfect. I, I really appreciate that you included the caveat that we need to make sure that they aren't feeling shamed. I I think I've spent a lot more time thinking about just like, as I'm reading the stories, I'm like, oh my God, how do we stop this? And and you're right. It's important that, that yes, we stop the really problematic things that we're going to read a little bit about in a few minutes. And they're horrifying. Like, let's, let's call it what it is. A lot of the stories that we're hearing about are straight up assault. It's straight up inappropriate and it's so horrifying that many of the people who experienced it in the moment didn't realize that's what was happening to them. They just thought something was wrong or that they were wrong. Yeah. Let's actually take a dive into a couple of those stories here. So the stories I pulled, one of them is from the article that I just mentioned. And then there's also this Instagram account. The handle is at Jews for, is in the number four, empowered consent. So Jews for empowered consent. And they mostly are sharing stories from teen years. So there's 
people of all different ages sharing their stories, but all the stories are from when they were either in youth groups or camp spaces. So the first one, she said, at 13 years old, I remember my counselor, who was probably 19, teaching two of the more popular girls how to give oral sex in the cubby room of our bunk. I specifically remember her asking them to bring a banana so she could demonstrate later that night when most of us were asleep. I remember thinking we are way too young for this. This is, I think, what scares me the most about the point system and about like what's going on with the teenagers is that our teenagers are also counseling our preteens and our adolescents counseling them in summer camp, counseling them as, you know, madrochim in religious school, counseling them in younger youth groups. And we love this because we want our kids to all be connected. But if these like issues of sexuality are being passed from generation to generation. Yeah. When I was talking about how like there were some staff, like there are some clergy and staff people who are like, you need to clamp down on this. And then there are other people who are straight up involved in perpetuating this system and are interested in the drama. This is a prime example of somebody who, I, I don't think there's a, there's an appropriate way to contribute to this incredibly problematic system, but this is just one of the examples that we're seeing that like, ick, right? Like this is not appropriate, but beyond it's not appropriate, it in itself, I think would be considered a form of sexual violence. Yeah. I'm not going to like decide what under which umbrella that it is. Sure. But this person had power over their campers, regardless of whether the campers wanted to find out or not. This person has influence and this person also probably has not received the information that we were just talking about that needed to be addressed. And so we're, as you said, we're passing down these issues or we're passing down the toxicity in a way that makes me really sad. And also if I knew that 19 year old, that 19 year, that 19 year old would not be working at a camp that I was running unless there was some major teshuva done, but that's incredibly incredibly inappropriate and yeah also we wonder what kind of information that she was receiving from people she looked up to so just one other of these stories and i don't i'm not going to read the whole story but another thing that i was really shocked by this is students who are the same age as each other in youth group this young woman talks about going to a youth group convention and this happened in 2020 this happened last year um and she sits down conventions in 2020 apparently uh february of 2020 yeah because i was at the last jewish community convention in 2020 which was apac and that was in march so yeah this was just before the world shut down which also like this poor girl then was forced into like solitude with the pandemic after this happened to her. So she walks into this convention. She sits down at a table. It it seems like maybe a dinner table, but there's also going to be some Shabbat programming. And when she sits at the table, a boy that she doesn't know has never met before sticks his hand up her skirt. 
and then like continues to grope her, put his hands between her legs. She asks him to stop. He doesn't. So she finally gets up and leaves the table because she didn't know how else to stop it. And when she asked a friend about it, they said, that's just what happens. We shouldn't have sat with strangers. (sighs) Like, I'm just, I'm sad for our kids that they can't go to a teen program without fear of being assaulted by other teens. And that again, like it all leads back to this need for education. I would love to believe that like, if we could go back in time and educate these people before they get to these situations that like, maybe these things wouldn't happen. Yeah, I think so from one of the quotes that we read earlier, something that jumped out at me that I really, really did not like was that it was talking about as of the publishing of this article, dozens of young American Jews have shared their stories of feeling pressure to engage in sexual activity, to witnessing or experiencing a full-fledged sexual assault. The term full-fledged sexual assault is a Mm. very loaded term. Is a full-fledged sexual assault penetration? Is it only with men towards women? Is it only... Whatever it is, there's so many pieces of of unnecessary baggage that are tied to that, that someone might think to themselves, oh, well, this happened to me, but at least it wasn't X. And that's just not really how this person experienced trauma. There's not a hierarchy. It's not at least X didn't happen to me. What happened to this person was already incredibly problematic and traumatic that should have never happened Yeah. And then on top of that, one of the other things that we can't blame the friend for not knowing how to respond because we don't teach our young people how to respond. But one of the things that is added trauma when somebody shares that something happened is what people say in response. It's not just about the moment itself. It's about what happens afterwards when they share that this incredibly traumatic thing happened. And what people hear may guide the other sources of support that they may look for. So when someone says, well, that's what happens, the chances of somebody then going to seek out support for the emotional and mental and physical trauma that they're working through, they may end up just thinking like, well, I guess this is something that I need to work on because A, it's it's at, at least it's not X and B, if yeah. I told somebody this would be how they would respond. It's already happened, right? Yeah, that's tough. And that that points to the fact that not only do we need to teach people how to how to protect themselves, but also how to protect each other and how to respond if somebody confides in you because you never know right like a friend could confide in you somebody else's kid could confide in you and we all have to be prepared to like take in that information and and support that person whatever age whatever gender in a way that that helps them continue to work through that trauma and not bury it or rebury it what I would love to be able to talk about that we can't talk about yet because it's not been published is the report from the URJ. I recently read that the URJ's report is going to include youth groups and URJ summer camps. And so I think 
what we've learned from this article that we shared a few things uh, from today is that we've really only just scratched the surface. I think there will be a lot more stories to come, which is, you know, it's sad that people experienced that, but I think it's also empowering that that we're creating some space for these stories to be shared. And so I'm, I'm grateful that that space will be there. And, you know, who knows, maybe there will be an opportunity for another conversation when that report comes out. We will now move into the report of investigation into allegations of misconduct at Hebrew Union College, Jewish Institute of Religion, uh, where I am still currently a student about to enter my final semester of rabbinical school. And you are, you know, just, just barely, not even quite a year out of HUC, which is hard to believe. So I'll share just a few of the quotes. I, you know, I put eight different quotes on this text sheet, but I don't want to read them all. I just think there's so many important stories. And I really, I only focused on the part of the report that covers sexual misconduct. For those who are listening, if you haven't looked at the report, it also covers issues of LGBTQ bias, racial bias, discrimination against students who have special needs, uh, be it learning or physical. There's all kinds of issues going on in the institution, but for today's conversation, we're going to focus on the sexual misconduct. So one of the first comments, like at the top of the report, is that the most prevalent comment the lawyers heard in this investigation is that the mindset across all HUC campuses is like a good old boys club. This is something that was said to me when I told rabbis in my network that I wanted to apply for rabbinical school. Like I was warned about the good old boys club. I don't think I understood the amount of issues that existed, but I did understand that like going in as a woman, I, I had to sort of have a different, a different kind of shell to protect myself in this environment. And that I, to get by that, I might have to like play the game, quote unquote. I don't know whether I knew beforehand. I don't remember, but I had come very shortly after my women's studies undergrad and then some time working at a Jewish nonprofit where I was able to continue doing stuff that I was passionate about, but all tied into like, wow, I'm so angry about all these terrible things that are happening in the world. So I dare you to step at me. Like, I'm going to jump out at you. Like, the guns were ablazing, if you will. The fiery, short, redheaded Jewish girl lived to her name. I think that I, I kind of had just prepared myself that the world in general is really messed up. And when you're angry at what's messed up, then get angry about it and talk about it and hopefully find some allies. So I think that a lot of navigating any kind of that nature of school there, which by the way, is not just at HUC. I was like, yeah, well, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. And probably going to be be pissed off at somebody for doing the wrong thing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I I mean, I still do the things I want to do. I think I just approach them 
thinking, like constantly thinking about how are people going to respond to my actions and, and how can I mitigate sort of what I see as, as negative responses or responses that I don't want. And one of the challenges is, especially for an institution that so loves and cares for tradition, what happens when that tradition is a good old boys club? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, I think we've learned that there are pieces of tradition that we have to let go of. And certainly that's not to say that we want to let go of all of our tradition. Obviously Judaism is like just oozing in tradition. Everything we do um, is rooted in some kind of tradition or another, but there are pieces that I think it's, it's okay to, to say goodbye to and to, you know, put them in the museum, so to say, not to say that they don't exist or that they're not a part of our history. I I certainly wouldn't want to minimize what's happened to people who have been victimized by this by trying to erase it from our history. But, uh, you know, the hope is that it won't be so much a part of our future. I would love to say it won't be a part of our future at all, but I think I'm more realistic than that. Even in a world where we provided every bit of education that we want to, um, there are still going to be things that happen that aren't okay, but but hopefully it won't be so systemic in the future. So the other quotes we have, I mean, there's all kinds of stories everywhere from exposure to inappropriate touching between students and students, between professors and students complaints about students feeling as if they were being groomed. And these allegations, I mean, go across 50 years. And there were current students who reported. Uh, The number of current students was a lot lower than former students. But I think that has a lot to do with this fear of retaliation that's also spoken about throughout the report. In the past, there have been people who have come forward about their abuses and tried to get the support that they they thought they deserved from the college and were silenced in in many different ways. And, And there are people who have feared whether or not they can get a job if they speak up for themselves because someone who holds power, who maybe has the ability to give them a recommendation, which like there are some legal protections around now, but it's really, it's, it's not just about the way it affects you when you're traumatized in that moment, but it's about the way it affects you moving forward for the rest of your, your tenure as a student and, and really the rest of your, your career. Because, you know, while these kinds of things do happen at any school, like the network of being a rabbi ordained at HUC is tight. And not just a rabbi, I shouldn't say just a rabbi, like being a student at HUC, the network is tight. And these are people we're going to see for the rest of our lives. So it's not as if we walk off the campus and it's only a part of our past. This is really, it's a part of our world. So I'll just say 
from my personal experience, I didn't experience a lot of the things that were described here. I never really know what to say in relation to that. Like on the one hand, thank God. And on the other hand, like how incredibly painful that there are other people who did experience it. I think for me, there's something incredibly painful about knowing not only that this happened among people who are supposed to be the leaders of the reformed Jewish world, but also that when people then shared what happened, that was an additionally traumatic experience and that people did fear for their careers and for their lives. And, you know, if we're supposed to be the people who are visionaries for the future of our movement, what happens when the people who are the visionaries of the future of the movement aren't visioning a world and a movement that supports survivors and preemptively does work to make sure that human beings and trauma are not further traumatized by their Jewish experience. Because if that's what we're experiencing as Jewish leaders, what the heck are we going to do when somebody in our community comes forward to us? Are we going to recreate what happened to us, but in our communities? I see I, I, I mean, as you said, we don't have the details of the URJ study yet, but without even knowing what is coming forth, I see an incredibly close connection between what's happening at HUC and what happened at HUC and the training that we did receive at HUC and the training that we didn't receive at HUC to what's happening and what's happened in the wider movement. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that I really pushed for was training around as clergy people what happens when somebody lets you know of an experience of assault or domestic violence that they've experienced to expand the sexual violence umbrella once again which really also could be expanded to grooming to stalking to harassment to all of these different things and we had a session once during my time which i'm honestly really grateful for that we even had that. And I think that there was a lot more that that session could have accomplished than it did. But until we intentionally address both for ourselves and our institution and for our future communities, we're going to recreate the same cycles of trauma and the same systems that are unwilling to support people who've experienced sexual violence. And we're going to continue to be part of the problem until we decide actively and intentionally that we're not. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And I think what the correlation you pointed out between the fact that these things are going on all over our movement and they are linked. It's not like what's happening in the youth movement that we talked about in the beginning of the podcast is really separated from what's happening at HUC. Because like you said, and and me, you know, I grew up in a URJ summer camp. You grew up in youth group and, and also summer camp, I believe. You had both experiences, yeah? I worked at a summer camp. You worked um, at a summer I went, camp. I guess I didn't go to a URJ summer camp. I went to a summer camp for a, a year or so, but I don't really, I, that's not like part of my identity in the same way that working at a Jewish summer camp did. But we're, you know, we're both products of the young movements in Judaism and and then we both ended up in HUC. And, and I think, 
you know, that can be traced for generations. And that's not to say that every single student who comes through Hebrew Union College has participated in a youth movement or a camp. There are certainly people who have not, but it's a big part of our world and they're very connected. Completely. I want us now to take an opportunity to dive into our perspectives as a a current and almost rabbi to talk about what does Jewish text say about this. And I have a piece that I used in my senior sermon that I'll read in just a minute. Um, And then just what are some of the things that we know already exist and what are some ideas that we have if we had, you know, endless budget and support from the community to create the programs we wanted to create. So we'll do a little bit of dreaming together. But first, let's tackle this text. So I found this text in Mishnah Bava Kama that I think speaks really perfectly to our obligation, specifically to people who were harmed within our community, within Jewish institutions, or by people who hold power in Jewish institutions. So the Mishnah reads, one who injures another person is liable on five counts for the damage caused, for the pain inflicted, for support of the healing process, compensation for lost time, and amends for the humiliation caused. And so I just want to talk for a few minutes about how this could inform the way we help survivors who are harmed by our own community. And I have a few thoughts, but I'm happy to let you reflect first. I mean, what this text is really about is about accountability, right? So we've been talking a lot about survivors of sexual violence without really talking about the people who are perpetrating the sexual violence, whether they know it or not. And one of the challenges that Jewish communities have is in order to have accountability, even though every Yom Kippur were all about teshuva and salachli ki chatati and chatati lefanecha, in order to actually have accountability, you have to acknowledge that the problem happened in the first place and then be actually willing to deal with what teshuva needs to look like. And this right here isn't even really fully a teshuva process. It's part of a teshuva process. It's the part where somebody, whether they want to or not, is told what you did was wrong. You have to pay this to this person. That is what is owed to them. Not because that's the worth of the trauma. That's a lifetime of trauma that they're dealing with. In Bhavakatma, it's specifically one who injures another person. But I mean, sexual violence is not just injuring another person. It's that and, right? So in my mind, this text says to me that our Jewish communities need to be better about taking the first step on whether whether somebody agrees that they did it or not, that they have to be held accountable. And that, that's not the only step that takes place. I think sometimes they are, they're like, we've made a statement. We've done yeah. our job. Congratulations to us. We are, we are at the forefront of what addressing sexual violence looks like in our community. And God forbid that that's the only step that's ever taken. But honestly, that's often more than what some communities will do. 
Yeah, that's absolutely true. I think I think the first thing that it makes me think of is the need for for public responsibility, for taking responsibility for your actions and and when it's institutional that it be public, but yeah, that it not that it not stop at that. Especially because Jewish communities have funders, right? They have funders. And on the one hand, what happens when the person who caused the injury is one of the funders? And on the other hand, what happens when it's not one of the funders, but there's fear that if we talk about this thing that happened to us, that our funding will run dry. Yeah. And those fears are real. Those fears are not coming from nowhere. But if they're getting in the way of somebody receiving the support that they need from their Jewish community, from damage that happened within their community, then that means that our fear is preventing us from supporting survivors. Yeah. That's like getting in our own way from doing what needs to be done. I think the other piece that this text makes me think about, what's the community's responsibility when there's something that goes on between two members of our community, right? I think most of it really goes to the survivor. It's making sure that that person has the support they need. And then also just to make sure that they feel safe in our community, right? That they that they can come to a Shabbat service and um, not have to face their abuser in order to pray. And that can get really tricky when you have, you know, maybe two members in the same community and something hasn't been fully adjudicated and you don't have all the information. But I think it's really important that um, when we don't have all the information that we do our best to put survivors first throughout the entire process uh, as we gain more information to not compound the trauma that they've already experienced. Yeah. And one of the things, I mean, when we're talking about this specific text, one who injures another person is liable on five counts for damage caused for the pain inflicted for support of the healing process, compensation for lost time, meaning lost work time and for amends for the humiliation cause. That's not that one person um, finds out that they hurt another person and then they're like oh this is what I owe you sorry there's a judge in this situation there is a system in place there are people who are taking responsibility to decide who is being owed what and part of what that means is in Jewish communities who's taking responsibility to be a judge Who's taking responsibility to be on a bait dean to say that actually the person who needs to sit with the impact and sit with holding people accountable and to make sometimes difficult decisions around who needs to be held accountable in X and Y way, even if it's scary and may hurt our community financially or whatever the situation is. And we need to be better prepared to say, actually, oh, that's us as clergy people. Or, oh, that's us as whoever the us is going to be right now. I think a lot of it is, oh, well, we can connect people with other resources that are outside of us. And, of course, we still need to connect people to resources outside of us. We can't be experts on everything. But we also do need to take responsibility that we are the people who are saying this person came to me and shared this thing. It is my responsibility to carry out something that supports the survivor as is described in Baba Kama 8.1. 
let's shift into the next question. So this question was sort of the dreaming question I had in mind. Like, I think community support groups is one thing that I've thought a lot about that I wish we had, not just for survivors of sexual assault, but like for all sorts of different issues. I think peer support can often be just as powerful as as professional support to like know that you're not alone and that there are other people in your world and in your community. And to be able to like show up at a Shabbat service and sit down next to someone who you know is safe and knows your story and that you can feel safe together, that you don't have to walk into a place and think, oh gosh, my head is filled with this trauma that I'm dealing with and, and nobody knows and everyone must be staring at me and like all the feelings that you get when you're in that state to have people in your community who you don't have to feel that way around, I think is something that we're missing. Another, another idea that I think is sort of similar to that is the peer support matching program where it's like a one-to-one. The problem with these is it requires that the clergy really know what's going on in their people's lives. And I think sometimes we do and sometimes we don't. Those are some of the little dreams that I have. Yeah. The first thing that jumps out at me is that there isn't a Jewish organization to support survivors of sexual violence specifically. There is Shalom Bite for domestic violence. A whole bunch of Jewish family service institutions do address things around domestic violence, which is also important and thank God for the work that they're doing. But as somebody who volunteered in Cincinnati at this incredible organization called Women Helping Women that had a text line and a chat line and a hotline that could connect people with the resources that they need or people could just talk about their experience. There's no reason that there shouldn't be a Jewish space because sometimes the Jewish experience in Jewish community is a lens that one looks through as they're looking at their experience, right? And so one of the things that I've been thinking about in terms of something that I would love to see, and it's not a program, it's a whole gosh darn institution, but we need to have one of those. Of course, who's going to start it? Is it going to be me? Um, I'm not sure. I'll keep you posted. Let me know if you think about it, because it sounds great to me. Also, shout out to Women Helping Women. They're honestly formative in creating the rabbi who I am today. And I'm really grateful to the work that they do in the Cincinnati area. But the other thing, the other system of support and protection, and I'm going to move beyond uh, teams. And I'm just going to say for for people in our community, especially because we were talking about young people as well, and that people experience sexual violence before their teenage years sometimes, unfortunately. I see education systems as that source of support and protection because it creates further support and protection. And this isn't just around the challenging parts about intimacy um, and around like sexual violence and all the things that cause us to be incredibly afraid and rightfully so. But, you know, we talk all the time about these are the things not to do or whatever. We're talking more about the things not to do right (laughs) now because it's the conversation that's being had. 
but we don't talk about the things, but this is the things that you should do, right? Mm. Like these are the healthy relationships that you should be looking at. And these are the things that, you know, if you are feeling desire that actually doesn't make you a bad person, how are we looking at ourselves? How are we challenging the shame that has been passed down through generational trauma? How are we looking at self-esteem and mental health and healthy relationships and healthy sexuality and figuring out who we are and and celebrating who we are and the different identities that we hold and how that impacts where we're at and our journey may impact the way that we're experiencing things like desire and passion and all these different things. And we're not having those conversations either. So I think that we should be creating systems of support and protection as we create educational opportunities, which include training people on how to teach these kinds of yes. things, how to address these things in different communities, to support not only those who are going through the most challenging, heartbreaking experiences, but to support and protect <clears throat> the things that make us have hope and feel alive and feel genuinely grateful to have been a human being who experienced whatever we're experiencing in our lives, right? And we need to be supportive and protective of those things too. And I don't think we know how to do that either, except for when we're like, yay, Jewish continuity. That's not really the vibe I would want to go for. But I do have a dream of being able to collect resources and people who are interested in these things. We love collecting people, um, but having people <laughs> come together, have people come together and have trainings and conversations around how are we addressing these things and these various age groups. And I want to do this. Has anybody else done this? It's a dream that I have and we'll see how it goes. Huh. But I, I would love to see something along those lines um, happen so that people don't feel like they're recreating the wheel when they decide to address both the challenges and the beautiful things about being human. Yeah, I love that. I think I'll tell you like the other ideas that I had that I hadn't floated yet are an anonymous hotline staffed with trauma-informed experts. And basically adding mental health resources or like more mental health resources to Jewish institutional life. And I envisioned it sort of through the JFS model, through the Jewish Family Services model that like okay, we have people who are there to support the aging. We have people who are there to support people who are struggling economically or with general mental health issues. But like, what about trauma? Mm -hmm. You know, we need some some trauma-informed experts leading the way in, in every city, you know, not just at the top, but that people have access to and who understand the Jewish community because if you as the victim have to go in and like explain the makeup and the structure of your community, like all the information that we've been talking about for the last hour, it's, it's like an a, hour in itself, right? <laughs> it's a barrier, right? It's a barrier to getting help when you have to explain your identity. And so to have experts in our community who can provide that trained support and who also understand our community, I think could be really integral to people feeling like they can step forward and get support. You know, it would remove one of the barriers. Totally. I just realized one other thing. 
Something that could be a source of support and protection is for people at HUC to literally hear the word trauma-informed once. I don't think in my entire time at HUC and like in an HUC class or program that we heard the word trauma-informed or knew what it was or knew how to act in such a way at all in the five years. Unless I brought it to the table, which I often did, that was often the role that I ended up playing. But as future Jewish leaders and current Jewish leaders, there is an incredible need for us to have that lens in the same way that we can look at a lens through an academic lens or through a spiritual lens or through a pastoral care lens or whatever. We need to be able to look at things through a trauma-informed lens as well. Amen. I will tell you, I was very lucky to study with uh, Dr. Betsy Stone on the New York campus, who is a psychologist. She's incredible. And I took a class in early COVID as we were trying to figure out, like, how do we shift in this COVID world? And we talked a lot about trauma-informed responses. But you know, that was an elective summer course. It's not something that's a regular piece of our curriculum. And I would love to see more in our curriculum about trauma-informed care that's required for everyone because the downside of the elective process, having classes that hit these topics like trauma, like feminism, women's studies, um, for the people who- it's right. <laughs> right. And so the people who choose not to take those classes aren't getting that information. And like, hey, some of it is about a specialty, but some of it is like, we all need to be equipped to respond to trauma. That's not a specialty. I think that's like every clergy person and, and frankly, our educators as well, because they serve much like clergy in the lives of our kids. And, and I think it's important to recognize that we need them to have this training just as much as rabbis and cantors. So I think the last pieces, I mean, there's a lot more we could talk about. We've talked a little bit about education, I want to know if maybe there's any specific education programs that you've used or that you've studied that you are a fan of that you would recommend, or also just like other resources outside of education that you think are, are useful in this realm. Some things exist, not nearly enough. One of the big resources that was influential for me as I was writing my thesis and as I'm thinking about what kind of work that I want to do in the future around this area is our whole lives curriculum, which was developed by the Unitarian Universalist Church and the uh, United Church of Christ. I believe it was a partner project. And one of the things that it models is... This is for middle school and this is for high school because most sex ed curricula only if they're going to address something is probably around either eighth or ninth grade. But this particular curricula series has all the way from pre-K, as I mentioned earlier, all the way through older adulthood. So like into as you're living in a senior home. There's things that you can be learning or reminding yourself or discussing or figuring out that you were never taught or any of these things. And it's actually, it's not something that you're like, I talked about it once, we've checked it off the list, we've had quote unquote the talk and now we're done. This is something that just like Torah, we 
turn it and turn it and we continue to learn new things and learn more about ourselves and learn more about our whole our <laughs> our whole lives right um so that is definitely something that i would encourage people to check out I have like a whole list of books that I think that people should definitely check out. I'll send them to Maddie so that she can post. Yeah, them. I'll post them. That would be great. The other thing that I would suggest is reaching out to your local sex educator, your local family therapist, your local your local resources. There's likely more than you know, and there also may be likely not enough. And we just have to hold both of those things at the same time. Yeah, I would I would definitely suggest both of those, those things. If you're in the Cincinnati area, please, please, please check out Women Helping Women. They have a lot of incredible resources. If you can volunteer with them, I would also highly suggest that. So that's kind of in, in long and in short, there's a lot of resources and there's not enough resources and we need to continue to develop those resources. So if you have ideas of resources that should be developed, let's talk. <laughs> yeah. Let us know. Let us know. I have a couple I want to share too. So these are actually more specific to kids and their secular education. They're not formed by a religious organization, but I actually really appreciate that the curricula you spoke about is informed by a progressive religious group. I think I could see how that could be really useful in our environment as well. My first unpaid internship in undergrad when I was in my early 20s was at a child advocacy center. They were called Chaucey's Place when I was there. They've since changed their name to Indiana Center for the Prevention of Youth Abuse and Suicide. They offer all kinds of programs. And obviously these are specific to the Indianapolis area. But I'm pretty sure the programs that they're offering are nationwide programs that are being implemented in different organizations. And so I don't know exactly what it looks like to bring them like into a religious institution, but I'm sure that those options exist. So they have, I'll just talk really quick. They have something called Think First and Stay Safe for kindergarten through sixth grade, which talks more about how to have respectful and social relationships and then like what inappropriate and abusive behavior is and learning how to set boundaries. So pretty basic stuff, you know, how to ask for help, but really important and age appropriate. And then their seventh through 12th grade gets into these more difficult topics uh, regarding sexual assault, harassment, dating, violence, cyberbullying, sexting, you know, things that teenagers are actually doing. And what I read about this program, it's called Teen Lures, L-U-R-E-S, um, is that it was developed with a lot of input from teenagers. And it's designed to be something they want to do. It's interactive. There's like a website. There's a whole TV series. There's video games, I think. Things that are meant to like hit their developmental stage for the information, but also like activities that they're willing to engage in because, you know, teenagers don't always want to actually learn the things that we're trying to teach them. What I love most, most, most that this organization offers is a program called Stewards of Children. This program has been spread like all over central Indiana. So teachers, 
of public schools, private schools, religious schools, and more have trained in this. It's designed to educate adults how to prevent, recognize, and react appropriately to child sexual abuse. And so we talked a lot, and I think it's important for us to learn how to react appropriately, not just to child sexual abuse, but to like any sexual abuse. But they talk a lot about if you respond in the wrong way and it shuts the child down, you might not ever be able to get them to open up about it again. And and that causes all kinds of other trauma. And so I would be really excited to see us bringing this kind of training into our communities for the clergy, for the educators, for the parents, for volunteers who work with kids. I mean, this is like, if, if your life is touched by a child's life, this training is worthwhile. And so I, I highly recommend it. Anybody who can find it in their city, it's called Stewards of Children. It's just a great opportunity to learn how to protect the kids in your life. I think we've done it all, Zoe. I don't, I don't know that there's, it's not a problem anymore. (laughs) We fixed the problem. Um, you know, just like, just kidding. Just like this conversation was meant to do, right. To fix all the problems. I just want to thank you so much, Zoe. I really, I appreciate your time. I appreciate your friendship. I, appreciate your passion for this education and for bringing it to our Jewish community. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. This episode of Sichot Kashot, Difficult Conversations, was recorded, produced, and sound engineered by me, Maddie Anderson. I want to thank my thesis advisor and the dean of HUC's historic Cincinnati campus, Rabbi Jonathan Hecht, for putting up with me through my creative process and offering your support along the way. And of course, gratitude to Rabbi Zoe McCoon for being an inspiration to me and so many others. Lihitraot! Mm-hmm.